Hi, friends. Welcome to Bar of the Conference. I'm your host, Derek Scott III. Today's episode is with Lisa Greenwood. Lisa is an ordained elder in the North Texas Annual Conference and currently serves as the president and CEO of Texas Methodist Foundation and Wesleyan Impact Partners. She lives in Dallas with her husband, Joe Park. I'm excited about this episode in part because my experience of Lisa is that she is a leader of leaders and a visionary who is laser focused on the mission of the church. In this conversation, we talk about her upbringing in Texas Methodism, her exploration of her call to ministry, and the road that has led her to serving in the foundation sector of the church. We talked about her work at TMF and Wesleyan Impact Partners and the commitment those organizations have made definitely to the United Methodist Church, but also to the broader Wesleyan ecosystem. Lisa is not afraid to address the concerns of the current season we are in as United Methodists, but she's also not distracted from the work of resourcing the church for an innovative and faithful ministry into the future. This interview inspired, informed, and challenged my thoughts on the future of the UMC and I think you're gonna feel a similar way. So grab that notebook, that choice beverage, and let's listen to this interview with Lisa Greenwood. Lisa Greenwood, how you doing today? I'm doing well, Derek. I'm so excited to be with you. Oh, I am so stoked to have you on the podcast. We have uh, been working for a couple of months to make this happen. And I'm just uh, thankful that you were willing to keep working with me to find the time. And I'm just excited to hear more of your story. We have done a lot of work um, in different spaces for, for different reasons over the years. And we'll be doing more work together um, in the coming yes, months that I'm yes. excited about. Um, and I know little bits and pieces about the story of Reverend Lisa Greenwood, but um, <laughs> I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit more. Um, and really it kind of started the beginning, like um, how you became a United Methodist Christian, how God's provenient grace um, has acted in your life to bring you into our denomination. I'd love to start there. Sure. Uh, Okay, so I'll I'll try to streamline this a little bit, but to say that I grew up in a family with four kids. I'm the third of four, and we uh, moved around, but when I was 10, moved to Dallas, and uh, we we searched around for a church home and found a a Methodist church home. My mom had grown up Methodist, my dad Baptist, but we um, found First United Methodist Church of Richardson, and it was just a, a thriving congregation with lots of ministry for children and youth, and and great worship, and and continues to be that. Um, it, I I still claim it as my my home church that mm. that uh, really formed and shaped me. Uh, although I uh, my my charge conference is at a, a another church that's nearby, but anyway, um, 
so I grew up going to church on Sundays and going to worship and, and uh, grew up in that youth group. But I would say my, my real formation and calling came out of my camping experience. Like so many folks can, can say, trace it back yeah. to those, those experiences. In our case, it was at um, Bridgeport, Texas, our, uh, our conference camp. And um, I, through the just beautiful ministry and witness of Fred Winslow and Walt Markham and Don Smith and so many others and Cami Gaston that that were in leadership there who um, helped scripture come alive for me um, as we as as kids like as youth planned worship and dug into the Bible and so I think I first fell in love with the Bible and the stories of Jesus. Um, but also it was a place where I experienced grace, like real, this is what it means to show yeah. up for each other, to, to love each other. And I felt that high on that mountaintop of Bridgeport and then yeah. all through the year would try to live that as this teenager and, and such. Um, so I felt called to ministry. Um, I could go into that whole story um, I, at the time in high school, didn't have um, images of women in ministry. And though my family was super supportive of my being able to, to and I'm using air quotes here, do anything like that we would often say, I would be the first woman president of the United States. Like it was sort of that mm -hmm. was kind of the joke in the family and I could do anything um, but there was no sense that ministry was kind of an option. So, I mean, nowhere in my imagination other than at camp. And so I, I sort of tucked it away and thought, oh, maybe, you know, I'll just be super supportive of the youth pastor when I'm an adult and I'm in, you know, I just didn't know what that looked like. And so then I went to college and, and thought about, being a doctor, which is really what as a, as a teenager, I'd kind of imagined I would do. And, and so I took classes toward that. And then mm -hmm. um, by my junior year, it was time to decide. And I feel like this is too long a story, but I'll just kind of, Oh no, you're doing great. This okay. is, yeah, this is good. <laughs> so um, I remember the moment sitting in my apartment, my junior year, and you have to declare your major and your minor, right? That up until now, mm -hmm. you've kind of been pointed somewhere, but this is time to declare and finish out your upper level classes and get your degree and blah, blah, blah. And so um, I remember thinking medicine, uh, psychology, and like sort of counseling. Um, I had always been interested in politics and kind of changing the world. Um, that, and, and I thought about teaching, but so those were kind of the, the major thing. By this time I'd gotten out of my pre-med stuff. I, I was in liberal arts. And, okay. I was, I was yeah. wondering. If, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I pretty just much it, said. This racking is, up all the credits for all the classes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, but I, I had pretty, I mean, I had shifted. I, I just realized that anyway, but I still was thinking, I mean, it wasn't out of the question, but I, I looked at all those things and I had this kind of Jonah moment, if you will, of realizing that all of those things that I had named were all about this deeper calling to help to, 
to be about human flourishing and mm. thriving in the world. I mean, that that's language I'm using now, but mm. but really sort of well-being of, of humans and communities and the world, right? I, I that all of them were about that. And um, and I had this kind of moment of clarity, which I that's sort of how I've understood the Holy Spirit to work and to speak in my life as been less about words or a voice, but, but clarity, it's almost mm -hmm. like the fog clears a bit and I go, Oh, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So I, I remember it was fall of my junior year and I pretty quickly made an appointment to see um, a couple of these folks that I named from summer camp and have a conversation and say, what do I do with this? Like, I think this is real. I think I'm being called in ministry. And, um, and so they were super for affirming and helped me, you know, through the, the process in the Methodist church, there was a, a purple book discernment and, and, uh, and, you know, get to start the process. And there are people and, that literally heard you say purple book and they were like, yeah, yeah, I know yeah. about that purple book. Yeah. <laughs> right. I remember. Yeah. And, uh, the, the weird thing was when I told my parents, they, they, they just, thought it was a phase like they did not mm. they were not affirming at all in that I had never experienced my parents not being affirming right mm. in that sense right yeah, there yeah. and so yeah. it was very strange it was a it was a it was a very difficult time for me really for a couple of years and and I continued to pursue and I I did well at school and all the things that I needed to do, but I, um, but, but my parents never, you know, they'd, they'd talk about that. I would, I would in their hearing, hear them tell a friend, yeah, Lisa will probably go to law school, like her sister and brother, you know, just like refusing to admit, like it was the weirdest thing. Mm. And, and, uh, and so then when it was time to choose seminaries, I, um, I was, it really came to, I visited a couple, but it was really, it came down to uh, Perkins, which was in Dallas, which was, you know, home and Methodist and all of that and Yale Divinity School. And I loved my time at Yale and, and um, my visit, you know, when I, mm -hmm. and, um, and, and I think ultimately what was the deciding factor for me was that if I went to Perkins, um, I would, I would be in my kind of bubble of my home conference, the people who knew me and raised me. I'd work in a Methodist church. I would never have the question, why am I Methodist and is this the right path for me? And I, I actually had that question in my mind. I was mm. pursuing ministry in the Methodist church because I'd grown up in the Methodist church, but not because I had a really clear sense that this was the right place for my theology and my calling and all of that. And so I decided to get outside of my comfort zone. And I went to, to Yale Divinity, which was an, a, a great experience for me and the right decision. And I, I went to the Methodism professor who was adjunct. He was a pastor nearby and, and just a brilliant man and, and lovely. And I, I made my case for being in his, uh, in his Methodist history and, and doctrine class before it was the normal trajectory, because mm -hmm. I said, I, I need to know if this is the right path. I don't know. And he said, okay. 
And I, I fell in love with John Wesley. I fell in, I mean, I just was like, yes, this is who mm. I am. Like, and, and I, I, you know, just to be clear, I know Wesley had his faults, but the theology and the purpose and this sense of, of marrying um, this scriptural holiness, which is of course how I came into faith that I fell in love with Bible and, and um, in scripture and what it is to dig into and peel back the layers and apply it to our lives. And then this, this, um, you know, sort of holiness of life too, and, and the marrying of that. And, and I, um, and so that, that was all of that. Uh, I, again, a bit of a long story. You know, too. Lisa, I, I love, oh, we needed every <laughs> bit of that. Um, I want us to move on into the journey a little bit. Um, and so what my question though may may be too early. So feel free to be like, it's too early to ask that question. Yeah, yeah, but no. I know you as a person who not just appreciates the diversity of the Wesleyan tradition, but you you call it forth. I mean, you, you, and I've, I've, it's one of the things that I love about you. Like, I, I feel like you will not let any of us just be typical United Methodists, like, or just yeah. be typical oh. Wesleyans. Yeah. Like, you're like, no, I want to see like how you are uniquely this one piece of the, of the larger whole. And so I'm wondering if that appreciation, I mean, and, and honestly, Lisa, I feel like you've got, that that appreciation just about humanity in general, mm. um, but I wonder that appreciation in general, but specifically um, out of the Wesleyan tradition, was that stirred in you while you were at Yale, or did that? Yeah, tell me a little bit yeah. about that. No, I think that's that's a that's a great thread to pull on, um, because I, you know, I, I did choose it because I wanted to get out of my comfort and just decide, am I United Methodist? Am I Methodist? Am I Wesleyan? Mm -hmm. And, and absolutely fully embraced that. And, and the, the really beautiful and challenging thing about being at YDS was uh, that, that we were in this mix, right? So um, my, my besties, my running buddies were, you know, Episcopalian, now an Episcopal Bishop in Nebraska, um, a, a, Presbyterian who now does spiritual direction and all kinds of creative work. He lives in Colorado and, and a Unitarian Universalist who I've stayed in touch with. And, mm -hmm. and um, we just had this mix and there was interestingly enough, kind of the whole broad spectrum of theology and belief and, and, um, and, and it, I spent a year as a chapel minister. So there were uh, three students that were chosen each year to be chapel applied and all of that, but chapel ministers, and because we had chapel every day and I went to chapel every day, it was a, a, a very much a part of my formation during, uh, during seminary. And, and, um, and we, we worked across theological lines, you know, so there was Church of Christ and there was Catholic and there, you know, and, and think about the edges and, and there was Baptist and there were Methodists and Episcopalians. And, you know, I mean, there was just this mix of, of folks who all in worship have 
deeply held convictions about how worship is done and how communion is done and what, I mean, we had to think about transubstantiation and whether our bread was too crumbly because that would really be Jesus on the floor. And we couldn't, we couldn't have that. That was not okay. You know, and at the same time who got in included in communion and whether Catholic our, our Catholic priest friends could actually serve communion to a diverse group. I mean, there were all these considerations that helped the conversation to move to a level of, um, what is the theological core here and what are we trying to do and mm -hmm. can we serve that higher purpose here and not get to the place of, you know, using Wesley's language that, um, you know, maybe the negotiables, if you will, there's mm -hmm. some that are non-negotiable, you know, but yeah, yeah. what, what um, can we you know, it, we, we had to navigate that and we had to be in conversation and very thoughtful, honoring conversation, even when we use different versions of the Lord's Prayer and what that did for person's ability to enter into the space and um, the kinds of music. I mean, I can just go on and on. I mean, worship, yeah. right, tends to be yeah. that place yeah. where, we're, where both our personal preferences and our deeply held theological convictions you know, come to bear. And so um, that was quite a, I mean, that really was such a formative experience for me. And um, yeah. Oh gosh. We'll probably pull that thread a little bit more as we sure. continue on. So you come through Yale Divinity School, um, confirm your, your, your sense of call within the United Methodist Church. Um, and you choose to come back home Yes, yes, which was tricky. North Texas uh, was experiencing uh, what I know lots of conferences don't, but that is we had more clergy than we had spaces. And so, you know, we all got a letter that said you might want to look for other options. And so I actually was going to stay. I, I, I was enjoying the Northeast and, and um, Connecticut and that same professor that had been my Methodism professor was was game to bring me on his staff. And, you know, I mean, we were having great conversations about all that. But then I was appointed to a church in Texas. And so, and I, I mean, if you're sort of doing the math here, I went straight through. And so I was ordained uh, a deacon back then we ordained a, a, a deacon and then elder and, mm -hmm. and um, in 92 and I was 24 years old. And mm -hmm. so I'm about to, in August, I'll be 56, just to say it to the world. But, wow. um, oh. and, and so, you know, I've been um, ordained, you know, 31 years in the, um, in the church. And so um, a lot has happened in these years. <laughs> That's what I will say. A yeah, lot has happened, yeah. not just in my own life, but in, in the life of the church, of course. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. What had, what did you appreciate about your time in the local church? Oh, oh, so much. Um, so let me say in those, uh, just to pull on that thread about kind of the diversity of thought and bringing people to the table, a youth ministry will also do that. I mean, you know this, right, college right. ministry and such yeah. will do this because you've got, young people who are 
who are at least stating outwardly, though their parents go to church and they're coming and they're attending, they're saying, yeah, I don't believe that stuff. I mean, they're, they're just wrestling with what they believe in and what they don't yeah. believe in. And then they're yeah. bringing their friends who are from these other churches or who are questioning whether or not God really exists or this even makes sense or how to, to wrestle with this. And so, you, you know, when you, when you bring folks together at, and, and, and questions and you make space for questions and you um, bring together all these different perspectives and you create a table, literally a table of grace and a space for um, wondering and wandering and, um, and asking questions and a place of covenant and care and belonging um, and invite these young people into questions of deeper meaning, I think that also broadens your perspective. And so, you know, those those 10 years and I was, I was at Highland Park United Methodist for a couple of years. And then I was in Denton for eight and a half years. And, and, uh, that was the place where I did the, the most, most of that youth ministry and, um, was, I, I loved it. And, and for so many reasons. And then, um, and then when I served in commerce, I never imagined I'd be a preacher, but I loved the rhythm. I loved, and, mm. and I, I, still to this day get crazy nervous about um, preaching, but I also love it because I feel mm. like it's this moment where I am, I bring, I bring all the exegetical work I've done and my love of scripture. And I, I bring this wrestling that happens in the midst of the preparation for the sermon, but, but it all feels like a moment of Holy spirit carrying you know, the 10 hours plus or whatever that went into the preparation, the, the, uh, I'm a, I, I preach without notes. Um, so that standing in front of the congregation and, and just trusting that, Oh my gosh, God, I know you've got to have this. We have done enough wrestling for this moment. And, and, um, and so there is this surrender, this very real, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I feel it in my body, even as I say this, right? Mm. Mm. Um, surrender that happens. And I, I don't, uh, I'll be honest, I don't love guest preaching because you just, it's, you just, it's a parachute drop into a moment, but I loved being part of the rhythm of a congregation's life. And I mm. loved planning the how we would dig into the text and how it would be connected to their small group and Sunday school rhythm and, and the, the rhythms of the church calendar, but also the rhythms of what was happening in our town and our community and, and in the, the life of different congregation members and how does that intersect? It's, you know, way back from my teenage camp years to, you know, doing that in a larger scale in the congregation and, and uh, I loved that. And so after commerce, um, well, there's a there's another little piece, but just staying with the local church, I mm. I got to help launch uh, a worshiping community at First Methodist Richardson. So I got to go home, which oh, was wow. lovely. And the the senior pastor there now is Clayton Oliphant, who many people know, and and um, Clayton is just a solid gold human being. He, mm. he just, I, I mean. He, he has formed one of the healthiest 
churches and staffs you would ever come to know, and they are thriving and vibrant. And I loved getting to work with Clayton and to form this new modern worshiping community, um, which is is still thriving and and mm. doing great great work. And um, and and so getting to do that was was really beautiful. And so. Um, when I went to the foundation, and I'll talk about that story because, um, but um, th that was probably the hardest thing was uh, I still felt deeply connected to the mission of the church and the purposes of the church, but I missed the rhythms. I missed the the rhythms of worship and being part of a, a local church community and um, but, it, it, I missed it like deep in my soul. I feel that. Yeah. I yeah. Oh, yeah. Man. yeah. So Lisa, when I first met you, um, you rolled into um, a set of meetings uh, at the invitation of Bishop Ken Carter in the Florida conference. It was you and Bishop Janice Huey. Yes. And for the first two, three times that I would be in the same room with you, you you were sitting at the right hand of Bishop Huey. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I want to definitely talk about foundation life, but I'd, I'd love to hear, there may not be as much here, but like your relationship with Bishop Huey and that, wow. that feels significant to me. Um, in the many spaces that I've, I've encountered you and definitely have encountered you without Bishop Huey, <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, for uh, sure. but um, that seems to be a special relationship oh, absolutely. from where I'm sitting. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. So um, just to do a, a, a shameless plug for my own podcast, but, <laughs> but mm -hmm. uh, yes, please, please. This, this, uh, this next season that we have coming out is about holy friendships and, and sanctifying friendship. And mm -hmm. one of those episodes will be with uh, two very dear friends of mine, Bishop Janice Riggle Huey and uh, Bishop Laura Merrill. And, and mm. um, so, uh, and just digging a little bit into that friendship and what that's meant. But uh, I will say uh, my, my first encounter with, Bishop Huey was, um, gosh, probably 25 years ago. And we were at a jurisdictional clergy women's gathering at uh, Mount Sequoia in Arkansas. And, um, and I remember her addressing the, the group and, um, she was recently elected a bishop and, and, um, and she said a couple of things. Uh, she, she was just reminding us to to kind of be strong as clergywomen and step up and and live into it and claim our voice and our power and our you know our calling and and all, all of that. And it was so inspiring as she always is. She's such a um, in her bones. She's a, a mentor, a encourager, a coach. A, you know, she's just yeah, this yeah. you know lovely one who lifts others up. And and she said uh, two things that I remember. She, I'm sure she said other things, but one she said, "Wear bright." <laughs> the men in the room are going to be in gray, navy, or black. You know, <laughs> so wear ah! bright, and um, which I love. <laughs> and um, and then she also said, "Say yes." 
find a way to say yes. You will be invited to things. It will feel like you don't have time for them or maybe they're not your most, but, but say yes. Um, because you know, that gives you an op who knows what, what opportunities will come from that Mm -hmm. experience, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, and that's how doors get opened and that's how relationships form and those kinds of things. And so, um, it has stayed with me always. And, and even still, you know, any staff team that I've been a part of will, will say, you know, I, I say all the time, we need to have a yes spirit. We need to create yes space. We need, you've heard, I mean, I I have, and it resonates, it resonates so deeply. Um, Wow. And so, so that, that goes all the way back. And then, I mean, over the years we've, we've had different interactions, but then when she retired as a a bishop in the church and um, uh, our president at the time, Tom Locke invited her to come onto our staff and, and we got to work directly together in leadership ministry it has just been such pure joy. I mean, what I, the the two colleagues, friends, mentors that I've had in this work in leadership ministry have been Gil Rendell and Bishop Janice Huey. I mean, really, mm, right? Yeah, I mean, right. I just, it has been such an amazing journey for me. And I have learned so much, but also they're two of my biggest um, encouragers and I, I like I know they're constantly supporting and lifting up. So it, it's mm-hmm. not it it feels so um um you, you know kind of mutually um uh, just I, I don't I don't even know I I don't even know how to talk about how just lovely the both of those friendships have been and and relationships and how much I've learned yeah. and grown and um, what a difference it's made. It's it's good. Oh wow. Yeah. Thank you for letting yeah, us yeah, go down that road. Um so yeah Lisa take me down that journey then from serving in local churches and 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 connect me to moving towards foundation uh, yeah. service, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So while I was in commerce, I uh, there were a lot of things going on, and it's probably a whole other you know conversation, but there were a lot of things going on in my life that um, were, was really bringing me to a place in my prayer life. Um, I, I often say it like this, like, or think about it this way, you know, a good United Methodist clergy prayer is, dear God, let me bloom where I'm planted, right? Because we're sent. Mm -hmm. And so wherever we're sent, let me bloom there. And my prayer shifted a bit to send me to where I might bloom, make the most difference. Hmm. So that was a, and I I don't know if you hear the difference, but there's Mm -hmm. a bit of kind of urgency and agency to that. Like, let let me not just, you know, go wherever, but let me, I mean, send me to those places where I can best serve and thrive. And I mean, no joke, like two months after I started regularly praying that prayer in my quiet time, I got a call from Cliff Christopher, who started Horizon Stewardship company Hmm. and he's a United Methodist pastor in Arkansas. And um, he invited me 
asked if I'd be interested in, in coming and doing fundraising work and with Horizon Stewardship. And they had done a campaign with us and it was amazing. It was so transformative for our congregation and not just raising the money, but what it did to our prayer life and to our sense of focus on our mission. And it was it was a little like in, in youth ministry, you could do more in one week of summer camp or of a mission trip than you could in the whole year of Sunday school and NYF. That's sort of mm. how it felt. It was mm. like this, this kind of revival-esque experience for us. So I wow. loved it. But I loved being in the church too. And so I, mm -hmm. when he called, I'm like, what? I'm a local church pastor. Why would I do that? But I said, well, let me pray about it. Let me think. And I mean, there was just this kind of aha of I, kind of a, I'm in this, mm -hmm. this, uh, you know, that I, again, clarity um, of the Holy Spirit in the midst. And, and so I said, I'll talk with you. And so I, you know, went out there and talked with him and then I met the crew and I, I realized that what I experienced in our church was not a one-off. It was actually the work that all these, there was, a, um, I don't know, maybe eight or 10 on his team and, and he had no women, which is why he called me. Um, <laughs> but um, but they, um, every one of them was about transformation. Every one of them was about disciple making and helping the church make disciples and that that generosity would come out of that. And I'm like, ooh, this sounds cool. And so I started doing that that part-time on the side while I pastored the church. And I did that for five years, including when I went to Richardson. The, the Richardson piece was part-time. And actually, I was appointed to Horizons as a, a ministry strategist and um, and then part-time with, with uh, First Richardson. And, and I loved that work. I actually, I mean, I had... It 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 just made me come to alive. I I loved that work. Walking alongside clergy and lay teams to do this generosity work to deepen their prayer life and their sense of purpose. And I, anyway, that was really fun. Yeah. And and then I had a call from Tom Locke, who's mm -hmm. who was president of TMF, and he invited me to come and do the one job that. I thought would take me from horizons that I thought would never be my job. I mean, ever, ever, I never imagined, but it was the one thing that, and that was to be the, basically the succession plan for leading the leadership ministry. And I could see that TMF with their cohorts at the time, it, it is, it has shifted dramatically in the last, it's, um, we're about to celebrate 20 years of, of leadership ministry. Mm. Um, at TMF. And, um, and the first 10 years was um, cohorts, Lily funded, um, really wonderful work that was done. And, and, um, but that was before everybody was into leadership ministry. Now every conference has, uh, you know, focused areas on leadership. And mm -hmm. I mean, it was, so we really said, what's ours to do when we began to make that shift. So I can talk more about that. But um, but just to say that um, I I did I I went to the team at at TMF and and got to be part of forming the next iteration of leadership ministry at um, at the foundation and and so uh, and again we can talk about that but but here's the piece I want to say about foundations and the church because I yeah. feel like this is really I. I um, I think foundations play a really important role in the life of the church. And 
and especially right now with all that's happening. So foundations have the opportunity to sit on the edge of the church. So even if even if foundations are are you know structurally tied to their conference, they still are not usually anyway um, uh, immersed or enmeshed <laughs> in the responsibilities and and um, the hairball, if you will, of the structure. And so they can do things without being responsible for the workings of the church. They can do things without asking permission usually, right? They sit on the edge and change happens yeah. in a couple of major places. It happens through leaders who sit at the center and have to make pivots and it, and it happens through the edge. And yeah. when the leaders are mired in a, a lot of very difficult structural kinds of hairball kinds of work, it's really important that you have partners on the edge that help you see that work. And foundations have the opportunity to play that role. And so, yes, I grieved leaving the local church when I went to the foundation. And I felt, I mean, I just, it was really hard, but I saw the potential. I remember how, uh, one of my I'm in a covenant group. We've been together 25 years and I've already mentioned Cammie, who's part of that. And, but um, one of my covenant sisters said, cause I, my grief was really deep and I was processing it with them. And she said, why don't you leave, go back to the local church. And I, it, it hit me again, a moment of clarity. Oh no, the potential is so great. And I believe in it so profoundly that I don't want to leave. I want to be a part of what is happening. And, and I, I think right now, while the church, the United Methodist Church, is in this um, moment of this season, I wouldn't even call it a moment, that does not give it, do it justice, but in this season of instability and what is emerging is the new UMC, but also the GMC and some independent churches that are finding their way to be Wesleyan in the world, foundations have a really important role of um, stability with the mission, right? That our purpose, yeah, and, and particularly yeah. with TMF, we have said our purpose is the mission of the church, not the organizational structure of the church. Mm. So we are going to stand mm -hmm. with you while you figure out how to best live into your mission. And our client is the purpose of the church, not the uh, organizational structure of the church, wow. if that makes sense. Yeah. So I, I love it. And, and I think I'm absolutely in the best place to live out my ministry right now and, and hopefully for the rest of my ministry. Yeah. We'll take a quick break. So, Lisa, um, I'd love to hear a little bit more about the history of Texas Methodist Foundation and Wesleyan Impact Partners. Um, and I know that there's a special relationship with those two organizations. So I'd love to just hear a little bit about um, 
you know, how those organizations came to be and, and even what maybe they're doing right now? Sure, sure. Uh, Texas Methodist Foundation has, I think, a, a really fun and interesting history um, because it was formed in 1938. So it was in the aftermath of the Great Depression. And what was happening in Methodism was um, they were feeling that the um, economic pinch and, and struggle. And, you know, so bishops in Texas weren't even getting paid. And there was, you know, I mean, it was just really a struggle. And what I what I love about what happened in forming Texas Methodist Foundation is it it was a group of, of really um, uh, deeply devoted United, or well, they weren't United Methodist, Methodists, and um, and they were strong lay persons and and a, a couple of bishops in the mix or whatever, but but particularly these lay voices that um, that they didn't form the foundation to get to bail the church out. That was not the reason. They formed it in order to help the church live into its purposes. So mm. we say today our, our mission and and I can yeah, we did a, a whole uh, a lot of work to discover this and to unearth this mission. Our our purpose, our mission is to empower the church in the achievement of its God-appointed mission, right? And that God-appointed mission came from those early foundational documents of TMF way back in 1938. So this sense that our purpose is to, to help the church stand as tall as it can in order to live into its mission. And, um, and, and that purpose continues to guide us today because one, it reminds us that um, we're all in with the church, mm -hmm. right? That, mm -hmm. that, and, and the broadest sense of that, it's congregations, but it's more than that. It's, it's nonprofits. It's, um, it's the work of the church. It's the body of Christ in the world, right? It's the, the fullness of what it means to be the body of Christ in, in the world. So, um, and for the sake of, of that body of Christ living into its purpose. That's why we say that the client of the church is the, I mean, the client of TMF is the purpose of the church. We're all yeah. about everything that we do is to help strengthen the church's mission. Hmm. And that's going to take different forms. Um, a, a good bit of our work, as you might imagine, is with congregations for sure. And it's going to continue mm -hmm. to be. Um, but even congregations are taking different forms now. And so we want right. to walk alongside those emerging forms of congregation. So that history of these courageous leaders who said, how do we help the church be its strongest witness continues today as we think about what it is to, to walk alongside uh, the church and help it be its strongest witness. So I love drawing on that, on that history um, that continues to guide us today. And, um, and then the thing I would say about Wesleyan Impact Partners is um, it was formed um, really from kind of preceding organizations in the um, EUB, the Evangelical United Brethren Church and the Methodist Church. And when the merger happened, this a, a United Methodist Development Fund was formed and housed at uh, General Board of Global Ministries. And um, and it was a loan fund and it was well run and it was specifically geared to and formed 
to help provide financing for uh, congregations, particularly who might not otherwise get traditional financing um, and realizing that that was a need. And that's why it was housed at Global Ministries. And, mm. and um, it was run very well. And they had developed, they had um, with their earnings had formed this kind of pocket of money, if you will, um, uh, that um, was undesignated that has has gone now to create the um, the, the you know support and capital for that those loans and, mm-hmm. and so um, it's just a, a, a strong organization and and when they when GBGM was moving from New York to Atlanta they began to look at is do we need to house this is this mission creep for us and 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 um, and then reached out to to TMF. Um, because they knew we could handle the loan fund. Um, it was about a third of the size of our existing loan fund. So they knew we could handle the loan fund, but um, in terms of managing that, but also um, they were so excited about the work that we were doing in leadership ministry. And they realized that this, that they could, in fact, instead of just growing their um, undesignated endowment that they could actually put money back into the church to, to make it strong. And so today we do have, you, you called it kind of a, an interesting relationship and we do, we, um, we have two different boards. They are two separate organizations with the IRS. Um, but there is, uh, but we share a staff and we share a, a key purpose, right? And so there are, they have different geographies and they have different services, um, but it, it is all in service to the church's mission. And so it's been, it's been fun to work with the two organizations and, and what they do. Um, so uh, we, we both do loan funds and, um, and that feels like really important work uh, mm-hmm. for the sake of the mm-hmm. church. Um, so the way that works is that um, individuals and congregations and conferences and agencies and such um, uh, purchase notes, if you will, right? They um, have deposits, which is, you know, a lot like a CD or a savings account, if you will. So they earn a little bit better than you'll get at a bank. Um, and then those dollars actually then get invested in those loans, and and so it's it's a kind of impact investing, if you will, because those dollars all get put to work for the good of the church. And so I I just hope anyone listening, I mean, you know, just not to be shameless about this, but, but you know, I, I mean, at, at TMF, it can be as low as a thousand dollars at Wesleyan Impact Partners. It can be as low as a hundred dollars that you can invest that then gets you know, reinvested in the church. Um, and then everything that we earn off of that from our spread gets put back into leadership ministry and grants and other things to help the church's mission. So it's just such a virtuous cycle. And so I, I just hope everyone is investing in their local uh, foundation, because if your money's sitting at a bank, then um, it's not working for good for the church, right? <laughs> and so, yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, wow. um, I, I so believe in the work that we're doing as foundations because we're helping churches be good stewards of their funds. And then at a minimum, 
And then when you go beyond that, many of us are then investing back into clergy leadership or congregational work of planned giving and generosity. And all of that makes a difference as we think of the big picture of helping the church have its strongest witness. And so it just feels like really important work. And it's a different, a different facet of the important work, but um, my experience Mm -hmm. of TMF and Wesleyan Impact Partners is it is this desire to invest in those who are building the church on the ground, both in the center, but also, and and named those on the edge. The church is built in between those spaces. And so thinking about both becomes super, super important. Um, I've also experienced that um, and this may be more on the Wesleyan Impact Partner side, um, but I've experienced uh, your embrace of the Wesleyan family um, and, and, and thinking about, um, I, I've yeah. experienced you all as being very committed to the United Methodist Church, but also recognizing that the UMC is a part of what we might call yeah. a Wesleyan ecosystem. Yes, and, yes. And thinking, and, and so, what is sort of the heart um, of investing in the larger Wesleyan tradition yes. for for you all? Yes. Okay. So great. I love going down this path. So, um, and I would say it's true of TMF and of Wesleyan Impact Partners that, um, and so here's the way I would say it, um, and and I may wander a bit, but just um, <laughs> so. Um, So we're all, if we go kind of to the 100,000 foot and we look at what's happening in the spiritual landscape and and we're all seeing it and we're talking about it in different ways, but there's a clear and researched and quantifiable uh, trend happening where fewer and fewer people are affiliating with organized religion. You can track that way beyond United Methodism and, yeah, and yeah. even mainline. Like it's just fewer and fewer people are are affiliating with organized religion and any institution or, or organization, right? And so that's been tracked for a couple decades now and, and such. But at the same time, there's this rise in uh, kind of a a spiritual hunger, if you will. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's very real opportunity for all of us who are deeply committed to the church's mission, to the gospel message, to the, the, the call of of God on our lives, like all of it into making the world a better place and to, and for flourishing humans and, and all of this, that, that, um, that there's this opportunity here to meet the needs of the spiritually hungry in perhaps different ways than we have in the past, because if they're not going to come and, and join congregations in the same way that maybe has happened in the past, then it's an opportunity for us to think differently. And part of the work that we've done at, at TMF and Wesleyan Impact Partners um, is to realize that we want to be 
we want to be looking around the next corner and saying, what's, what is the work of the church as we move into the future to help it have its strongest witness? And one of those things is that we kind of loosen our grip, if you will, on the primary delivery system that we've had, which is the attractional model church, and say we need to be um, but more expansive and creative in how we understand um, faith communities and our and and what that looks like. Yeah. And um, also that um, that expression of um, is it, going to look different than congregations, but it's it's um, it's also, not as the denominational loyalties are not as strong as they once were. And so how do we move into embracing the church's mission in the multiple expressions that exist? And of course, that has very real implications for us as an organization, but for many of the folks that we work with as the United Methodist Church is, um, is fracturing. And so I would say fundamentally for us, we're, we're deeply committed to the church's mission and, and realizing that that is going to be lived out in some different expressions, um, denominationally, theologically, but also even on the ground in congregations and faith communities that are being formed that look different than, than they did, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, so maybe I, it would be helpful if I got a little more practical on what that looks like for us. I kind of did the hundred thousand. Yeah. Let's go there. Yeah. So, um, so I, I would say for, for us as an, as an, or both these organizations, um, deeply formed and shaped and committed to the United Methodist church for as long because both existed before uh, the merger in, right. in 68, like yeah. all of these years we've been United Methodist, right? So our boards are United Methodist, our relationships are United Methodist, our clients, our congregations, and, um, and uh, many of us who are in leadership are United Methodist, many are clergy, you know, continue to be clergy in the United Methodist church. So that's, a, that's very interesting as we lean into what, is is happening in the church right now and and so um but I, what i would say is um because we live on the edge at the foundation though um we have, have all these ties to and and continue to be deeply committed to the united methodist church we also see ourselves operating on the edge and com committed to the to the mission of the church not the institutional structure of the church. And so as many of our clients are have made the decision based on their own context and discerning their own best way to live into their purpose, they've made the decision to disaffiliate from the United Methodist Church and either be independent or, or we've got Free Methodist, we've got Nazarene, uh, we've got GMC, we've got, you know, we've got several, we've got clients across some different um parts of the Wesleyan family. Mm -hmm. um, and now mm -hmm. we have clients that are Anglican and, um, mm. and AME we've got yeah. loans that, so really we have reached, we've, we've got really lovely, beautiful tentacles um, and partnerships um, across the Wesleyan family. And, and, and what 
I have loved about this is that we we have not, it, it has been our purpose to empower the church in the achievement of its God-appointed mission that's driven us. Our, we continue to stay deeply committed to our purpose, which means we can help serve United Methodist, AME, GMC, independent Wesleyan churches, Anglo, mm-hmm. right, right? We can go mm-hmm. um, beyond and um, and are still living out our purpose as we help those churches be as strong as they can be. And we made those decisions way before General Conference of 2019, actually. Hmm. Um, we hmm. made those decisions at TMF. We made that decision in 2017 at... Uh, Wesleyan Impact Partners, we made the decision around 2019, but we were already in conversations before that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And and so the the decisions were made and have been reaffirmed every year since then with our board, yeah. um, that this is actually our the way that we can best live into our purpose is to serve the broader Wesleyan family and the expressions the multiple expressions that are emerging in the spiritual landscape right now to best live into our mission. So, I mean, all that's been, it's, it's just felt like the best and right next step to live into our purpose. Is that that helpful? Oh, it's very, very helpful. And and I'd, I'd like to then sort of bridge then to what happened in 2019 and, mm. and uh, Lisa, this podcast is called Bar of the Conference. It's, sure. a, it's about the stories that are shaping United Methodist and how those stories are going to shape specifically what happens on the floor of the next general conference. Right. Um, and you know, one of the reasons I wanted you on this podcast was the role of foundations and how they're shaping our church. Mm-hmm. But also curious how the passage of the traditional plan, which I believe is a very significant moment in the history of United Methodism, mm-hmm. um, I'm curious how it impacted the 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 organizations that you're leading right, right. now, right. and if at all, maybe it didn't. Maybe right. it was a, just a, a a historical point, but. TMF and Wesleyan Impact Partners just keeps moving along, but I'm I'm curious if there was a if there was an impact, if there was a um, a response or um, a reaction even, um, right after what happened in February 2019 and the passage right. of the traditional plan for you all. Right. Gosh, there's so many directions we could go with this, Derek. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so, so organizationally structurally and our purpose, our day-to-day work, like we had already made decisions prior to General Conference of 2019 that would continue our work on a path that was deeply centered in our mission and that would would also make it possible for us to work with, as I've already said, anyone in the Wesleyan family. So mm-hmm. whatever, you know, would happen in the, in the United Methodist Church, we were prepared in terms of our purpose to, to move forward and to continue our work. But 
that being said, um, the reality of what happened at general conference was the beginnings of, or no, not even the beginnings, because the beginnings happened way before that, but um, the, it, it, it sort of made it clear that there was going to be a split, right? Mm -hmm. that, that folks were going to fracture. I mean, that mm -hmm. became clear in that way. It was unclear who would begin to leave and how that would happen. The United mm -hmm. Methodist Church had in that moment reaffirmed um, its stance on human sexuality. So would, would more um, progressive folks leave uh, given that stance or would, I mean, it was just, or, or would more conservative folks say, you know, we're, we're really kind of ready to not be having this conversation anymore. We're going to form our own, which is what happened. But it was unclear what would happen, but mm -hmm. what was very clear was that there that the the tension in the system being as even as the vote was being that all the dynamics that were happening that the 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 structure of the united methodist church could no longer hold the tension that it was going to fracture mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so how it would do that was unclear so so for us the impact, and it's really the the most of that impact has been since the disaffiliations started, because the the impact is relational, hmm. right? The impact is the pain in in the system. The the and I think it's all been more difficult, more there's there more wounding than yeah. anybody imagined. Yeah. And 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 we can trace psychologically uh, sociologically why that is and how anxious systems behave and how anxious people behave and I mean we can do that. But but the reality is there's just been a lot of pain. And mm -hmm. and I would say that is true. That's not just on one side. That's not just United Methodist or just GMC. There's been pain across the, the whole system. And for us, these are our friends. Hmm. These are our friends leaving. These are our friends staying. These are our friends getting ugly words said to them or lies told or, you know, in the middle of it. These are our friends who are bishops. These are our friends who are pastors. These are, you know, and, and, and they're on our boards and they're in we're in relationship and we have loans with this person and we have investments with that and we have i mean these are i i mean i can feel it in my body as i say these things this is this pain is so real yeah and it is um, uh so yes we made the decisions five years ago but now we're living it and mm. we're trying to figure out how to come alongside our clients. And when I say clients, I mean, these are relationships. These are friends who are staying and who, you know, are ready to move on, ready to kind of be the new thing mm -hmm. and still wound, you know, licking wounds and hurting and smarting and, and our friends, our clients, our friends, who have disaffiliated, who are trying to figure out, do we trust you? 
You've mm. been United Methodist so long. Are you really here for us? We think you are. You've always been our friend. You're still the friend you, you know you've been. And and so and trying to figure out how to help these churches stand tall too, and um, and all of that is is heart work. Mm. It is it is soul work. It is relational work, and it is sitting down at the table over and over and over again um, with people we care about who are trying to be faithful. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, the last year has been really hard and will continue to be hard because, because we're in it with the church and the church is hurting and it's struggling. And so we're trying to be a, a friend, a conversation partner, a financial services provider at a time when there is more financial instability than the church has experienced in decades. Yeah. And, you know, some of those churches are, are the actual congregation is fractured. Never mind the annual conference is fractured. Like it's, it is so real and it is every single day for us because we love the church and we're in it with you. And it, uh, yeah. Wow. So structurally, we were like, great, we just keep going. We're living out our purpose. But relationally, we are, we feel the very real pains of schism. Mm. And there is such new potential for the UMC to be strong and focused and clear and moving forward and the GMC to be strong and clear and focused and moving forward. And for some of these independent churches to find each other and to mm. figure out what connectionalism is in a new way and to be their strongest witness in their neighborhood and in their community. Like I, I believe this could be the the greatest new awakening for all of these entities. And, and I want to help that happen in whatever way, you know, we can walk alongside and help that happen. Lisa, I just want to observe, you know, something it, and it was in the question I asked and you, you kind of brought it back of, you know, how, how are the foundations you know, impacted and there's this sense like it could just, just keep doing its thing. Um, and I think that there was a model of leadership that told us once upon a time that that's the proper hmm. posture and response to the chaos of our world to just keep moving along. Um, but I really appreciate the way you have named the pain that's in the system, mm -hmm. the, the whole thing, yeah. the way that relationships have been impacted. Um, because what that says to me is what, and, and you've already said it, so I'm literally just gonna repeat it. You're, you're in this with the church. Yeah. Which means this season of pain and separation and um, back and forths and trying to heal and defend and build and 
re re redraw the history the you know like all mm -hmm. of it's happening all at once i also love how you named that you see a future that is specific to each of you know these particular players but i think that it speaks to the future of the mission of the church mm -hmm. which is bigger than the structure i'd love you to if you could just speak a little bit more about that. What are the signs of life? What are the signs of renewal? What are the, yeah. the bright spots, the, the, the new things that you're seeing, the new thing that God's doing across the, the, the breadth of TMF and Wesleyan Impact Partners? Like what, um, what is that stuff that you're seeing, even in the midst of all of this really, really just <laughs> less than yeah. ideal uh, dynamics? Um, right. Sure. So one of the things that, that I get to see um, as the UMC begins to kind of move ahead and think about its future and, um, and the GMC gets to move ahead and think about its future and, and some of these independent churches are thinking, uh, doing the same, right. Um, is, uh, well, one of the things that happens in the midst of disruption is that you begin to get clearer about your your identity and your purpose. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'm seeing, I'm hearing those conversations. I'm seeing it. And so, what that brings when you start when you talk identity and purpose, that brings about a new energy. Mm. Right? That's reminding yourselves what the Holy Spirit is doing in you. It, you get back in touch with your call. You get a sense that you're part of something bigger. And I'm seeing that in it, in all these different places that are emerging, right? And that's really fun. And And the other really practical thing is everybody's thinking about church planting because yeah. now they no longer in this whole region of their annual conference or their geography, they've got you know, they're like, oh, well, we need to think about what our witness is going to be in that area. And so mm -hmm. there's this there's this effort toward planting, which I, I frankly think is something that we ought to be thinking about all the time, right? And so, yeah, yeah. So, and, and there's a new creativity to that because mm -hmm. there's, again, to that 100,000 foot, like realizing that our, our inherited models aren't necessarily the best models moving forward. It doesn't mean that we're not always going to have really strong, vital, uh, attractional model churches, of course, but but we're thinking new ways about how do we engage our community and our neighbors and what it means to be a witness in this community or that one. And those are, are necessarily creative because we don't necessarily have the church building in that town anymore or that community. And so so we're beginning to think more creatively. And, and I say that across the board. I'm seeing that in the GMC and I'm seeing that in the UMC. And, and when you're in a time of disruption and when you're in a time where um, maybe some of the tools and resources that you had before aren't there, then I think you begin to be innovative, right? It's the seedbed of innovation, which is so fun and wonderful. And so I love watching that happen. And and I should probably say for your listeners, because they're all, I'm assuming all over the, the country, mm -hmm. that um, if you haven't looked at kind of the the map of disaffiliations and some of that, um, Texas and New Mexico is a real epicenter of disaffiliation. Um, mm -hmm. And um, 
And it's also an epicenter of uh, the GMC. So um, whereas in some parts of the country that may be less so, it's a, it's a very um, uh, p- uh, potent um, and generative mm-hmm. reality for us. Yeah. And, and so uh, that is why it is top of mind all the time for us relationally and, um, and in terms of how we, we see our work and do our work. Uh, Wesleyan Impact Partners has a bit of a different vision. Uh, of course, across the Southeast, there's, some, there's a, a good bit of, of strong uh, GMC pockets. And then across the country, there are. There are. I mean, it's not, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just saying that, that there's, um, there's just such a, a, a strong presence of, um, of, of folks who've disaffiliated. So, you know, we'll, we'll probably have 30 to 40% of our, our clients um, who will have disaffiliated. And so that's no small mm-hmm. thing. I just want to give perspective. No, I appreciate um, that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, um, but I also, again, I also appreciate this recognition that this is where the church is. Right. And, and you're stepping into it. Yeah. Not stepping into it, you're staying in it. Staying, right, <laughs> staying right. These are the same yeah. people we were meeting with last week, only now they've been through a lot or you know, yeah. last year or whatever, yeah. but they've, they've been through quite a lot to get here. And and we want to help help these churches, these pastors, these leaders stand tall. Lisa, this next question, and we're we're wrapping up here, but this this next question is literally its own podcast series. But what do you see the future of foundation work? Um, as it relates to the church, I mean, not just the United Methodist Church, though that's my primary interest. But how do, how do you see if I mean every sector is going through a transformation and disruption right now, right um, across our world? What what are you seeing as the future of of the like the work that you do um, yes. going into the rest of this decade and beyond? Yes. Well, so I've alluded to this already, not just alluded, but kind of, you know, I'm I'm a a champion of our uh, foundations having a role in helping the church's mission be strong and and Mm -hmm. the church to have its boldest witness. And and so I, I think for foundations, one, we ought to be thinking about, and I hope, and I think we all are, um, thinking about how to help the church be a good steward of its resources. So at a minimum, foundations are trying to get good returns on endowments and in, in, and such and investments and, and so that the church has more resources to invest in its mission. Um, but also I think we can use our, our own resources and, um, expertise and, and ability to convene and, uh, be in conversation and to partner to help think about the next ways that the, the church ought to be thinking about its resources. And, you know, one in particular is, uh, churches have an immense amount of property um, that can be used for good in the Mm. world. So how Mm -hmm. are we thinking about um, how our property, our our buildings, but also our land, our assets um, used in ways that bring about good, that bring about equity, um, it might be affordable housing, it might be senior living, it might be childcare. How are we thinking about the 
the inequities and the needs and even the assets of our community in a way that we can be participate in that. And I think foundations have a role in helping churches do that because hmm. we tend to have some expertise in the areas of financial services. And, um, and so really helping the church think about being a good steward, but also being creative about living into the future and not just doing things the way we've been doing them, but but thinking creatively about new solutions to um, pain points in the world. Um, and then I would say the, the third part of that, if I've done three, <laughs> but um, is, is to, to really invest in, um, in leaders in different ways. And mm. some of that is, is helping um, leaders on the financial side you know, their own financial acumen, their own financial well-being so that they can help their congregations be strong. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a significant role that foundations can play in that realm uh, because we tend to know it and live it and understand it. And so to help equip leaders in that front, but also because we're sitting on the edge, how do we help think around the next corner? Who in our system is thinking around the next corner for leaders to be thinking about and living into um, new ways to be the church and to, to be a strong witness? And, and that's certainly our uh, a, a significant part of our work at Texas Methodist Foundation and Wesleyan Impact Partners. Yeah. Yeah. So Lisa, um, do you have hope for the United Methodist Church going forward? I do. Hmm. I do. I do. And I have, I have hope for, uh, for congregations, for hmm. local churches, faith communities who are helping people know the love of God in their lives, hear mm. the Holy Spirit, do the loving work of Christ in the world. I mean, I, I just believe in that and I want to be a part of it. Wow. Lisa Greenwood, thank you so, so much. Um, this conversation has hit like every emotion <laughs> and thought spark in my body today. Um, but I'm really grateful for the role that you are playing, the role that TMF and Wesleyan Impact Partners is, is playing. Um, so thank you. Thank you for your leadership. Thank you for your friendship. Um, thank you for the work that you do. And um, thanks for being on the podcast today. Absolutely. And Derek, you are one of the most um, created, creative, forward-looking um, enthusiastic uh, leaders in the church that I know. And I'm just uh, delighted to uh, get to spend the morning with you. Thank you. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Bar of the Conference is produced by the team at Wesley's Revival, a ministry of Studio Wesley. Subscribe to this show on Apple, Spotify, Amazon, or Google platforms so you don't miss a single episode. Thanks for joining us and see you next time.